0: Hey there! I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. And I'm Sean, and we're the VertiGuys, checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review some Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. And today we are going to look at probably the greatest story arc in the history of comic books. This Uh, is a really good story arc. I'm really excited to be here. This is Preacher, All in the Family, a.k.a the Angelville story arc, a.k.a. we finally get some answers to some shit that's been hinting since the very beginning of this series. Yeah, some questions that have been going on so long that the characters are tired of them. <laughs> um, and we'll be covering the first three issues of the story today, Preacher number 8, 9, and 10. This is a long arc. This is five issues, right? Yeah. Okay. So, we start with 1974. We start with Preacher Number Eight, which has on the cover a very pulp fiction looking Jesse and Tulip and a cow skull that says Angelville and has a pentagram dangling from it. Yeah, this is the gate to Angelville, Louisiana, and the cow skull is set on a gatepost, and through the gatepost, we can see a large sort of old southern mansion. And in the yard, rows of burning crosses. Yeah, who do you think keeps those crosses burning? I don't think Jody and TC have the work ethic to put up like three crosses every day and burn them. It seems like they better. I guess, but we're getting ahead of ourselves because we haven't explained who Jody and TC are. Those aren't the main characters normally. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we start in 1974. Yeah, where a very young Jesse is being asked, Know who this is, little Jesse? Know who's under this here sack, huh? In front of little Jesse here, we have a bound man on his knees with a sack over his head, and two guys who we will come to know as TC and Jody. Yeah, and TC also is holding a woman who we will... Soon find out is Jesse's mother, and he has his hand over her mouth. And as he pulls the sock off of the bound man, Jody says, "We got your paw here, boy," and then proceeds to put a bullet through his head. This will not come as a complete shock to readers, since we heard about this taking place back in issue number four. Obviously, it's a pretty shocking event anyway. It certainly had a major impact on Jesse and work finally gonna get the story of how that happened. Yeah. Now on the next page, we get the title page, All in the Family, along with some top drawer cussing by Jesse. Yeah, Jesse lets out a string of curses, and we are told that this is now. And also, this is just great art of his incredibly stressed out and hateful face. Yeah, yeah, wonderful facial expression here. The... Issue is, as always, written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon and a cover by Glenn Fabry. Yeah, and Excellent Colors by Matt Hollingsworth as well. On the next page, we see Jesse and Tulip are tied to chairs. Yeah, sort of setting the scene here, and a withered old hand is on the controls of a wheelchair and says... Is that any kind of way to talk to Grandma? Then we're going to flash back once again to this morning. Jesse and Tulip have been driving into Texas. That's where we last saw them. But they seem to have stopped for an argument. Jesse is pretty pissed off because he just found out that Tulip was a hit woman, briefly, in Dallas. Yeah, and again, this doesn't come as a gigantic shock. This time, not to him or the readers. We know this, of course, from issue number one, and... Jesse kind of sort of found out about it in issue number six, when he was eavesdropping on Tulip when she was talking to her boss McAvoy on the phone at the hotel. Yeah, yeah, and we know that he heard because he accused her of being a contract killer in that scene. Right. Tulip makes a counter argument here. She points out both that Jesse killed Psy in New York. As well, that he doesn't like to pass judgment on people. He passed judgment on Cassidy when he found out that he was a vampire back in the first story arc, and he felt pretty shitty about it. Yeah. She makes a good point and talks Jesse back into the car. And you know what? It's good to see that they are finally revealing these secrets that have been festering for so long. Jesse picks up on another element of Tulip's hit woman past, the fact that she uses a gun. He thought that she hated guns. And she said, well, I grew up around guns. I got to be pretty good at shooting, but that doesn't mean I ever really liked them. Look, I don't want to talk about it, okay? It's not important to what I have to tell you. So this retcon something we've seen a little bit, or reveals a little more about it, that although we've seen her be pretty unlucky, and although she doesn't seem to like using them, she looks pretty good with a gun. Right. And then she begins to tell him basically the story of how she became a hit woman. How she ended up involved with McAvoy. Yeah, but her story comes to a pretty quick stop when Jesse starts to say, until the end of, and she cuts him off, don't you dare say that to me. And then she hasn't said a word in two hours. Yeah, it's two hours later when she's willing to speak to him again and begins the story in earnest this time explains how after Jesse left her in Phoenix, she started drinking too much until she had a little scare. Every drinker gets them. It's whether you're smart enough to notice that counts, she says. She found herself peeing blood. Yeah, and she goes on to explain that she had to check herself into the hospital and get clean, and in order to do that, she had to borrow some money from a prick named McAvoy. Right. Once she was clean, she had to take on some kind of job. Now, the, the, only one that, the only one that he had to spare and that lived up to her standards of dignity was to take on a hit. <laughs> yeah, he says, got all the waitresses and lap dancers I ever need. He's actually pretty skeptical at first that she can take the job, but they go down to the basement where he's got a target range, and she demonstrates some very fine shooting. Yeah, that looks like eight dead center. Nice. Tulip talks here, too, about finding the nerve to be a hit woman. She says, Well, I stood there, and I thought about all the shitty things that had happened to me, and how I was never going to be a victim again. And I thought I could turn all that anger into whatever it was you needed to kill another human being. But when she actually saw the target, she knew she could never do it. So we find out that, basically, Tulip's a good person. The circumstances that she had been through, the excuses, the... Pressure on her. None of that really changed who she was. She couldn't bring herself to kill in cold blood. Right. So at this point, Jesse takes a moment to confirm that McAvoy is the one that he overheard the conversation with. And Tulip says, yeah, he still wants his money back. Jesse says they're gonna go see the son of a bitch personally. Jesse will make him consider the debt paid off or tell him to stick his money up his ass, literally. <laughs> Man, that's pretty harsh. He's got to stop telling people to put things in their butts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And Jesse says that he will tell his story once this issue with McAvoy is resolved. And at this point, they talk a little bit about Cassidy on their way into McAvoy's place, which is called Big Bad Max. (laughs) Tulip points out that he has no cape, no bats, no garlic. I don't even think he's got fangs. Jesse reveals that Cassidy came down south to open a bar, which he wanted to call the Grassy Note. As they're walking through the parking lot on their way to Big Bad Max, somebody sitting in a van recognizes them. Holy fucking dog shit, that who I think it is? So they come in, and there's a guy sitting in the front room reading a comic book. He says they're closed, and Mr. McAvoy ain't seeing no one, but Tulip says he'll see her. They have a... An unpleasant conversation with McAvoy. Tulip wants more time, Jesse threatens McAvoy, McAvoy orders Jesse killed. Yeah, I like this line here. And here I am thinking I got my three boys to just you and the lady, Reverend. Comes as a shock you had us outgunned all along. Yeah, so he orders Tulip tied up and Jesse taken downstairs and killed. But suddenly, somebody has a gun on the guard. Yeah, the guy with the comic book who we saw on the last page is giving somebody the word closed speech without looking up and we see that they're pointing a gun at his head. Just as Jesse starts to use the word, a gun goes off in the front room and somebody kicks down the door. Yeah, and this is Jody immediately making his importance to the comic book felt as he kicks down the door and proceeds to execute all of McAvoy's henchmen with brutal efficiency. And there's one guard who's black, and Jody makes sure we know that he's not just killing him for business reasons, that he's also a racist asshole. Yeah, that's true. I think he drops a fair amount of sexism towards Tulip in this scene as well. Jody really has no redeeming qualities, but from the look on Jesse's face, we know that this is someone who he... Nonetheless, respects a great deal. Maybe respect is the wrong word, but certainly fears. And yeah. under- he understands the gravity of Jody being here. Yeah, Tulip tries to fight back, but is easily disarmed. And then Jesse tries the word of God, ordering Jody to drop the gun. And Jody just smiles. Want to try that again, boy? God damn you, Jody, you dropped that fucking gun. And Jody's smile widens. Okay, now we got that settled. Gonna take us a walk outside. TC has got the van ready. Any bullshit, I shoot you in the legs and her in the face. And just for extra gravity, he offers to let TC rape Tulip before they kill her. Just to keep Jesse compliant. Yeah, he's a real son of a bitch. These are some genuinely unpleasant people. And then I'm not entirely clear here on whether he kills McAvoy. Jody does tell him to go take a big ol' suck on the devil's pecker. Yeah, it's not clear whether he kills McAvoy or not, but he certainly at least tells him to fuck off. And the next thing we know, they're out in the parking lot, and Jesse and Tulip are being marched into the van. I also want to point out something here, which is, it's not just that the Word of God doesn't work on Jody. It's that he knew Jesse was going to try it. Right, he anticipated it, and when it doesn't work, he knows that's what happened. Yeah, he he knows all about that particular power. So as they're being marched into the van, Jesse tries to convince Jody and TC that Tulip is nobody he knows, just some hitchhiker. But TC says he remembers her from Phoenix. Right, TC is pretty thrilled to see Jesse in a strange way, and... He explains, basically, that they were just driving along, and T.C. spotted Jesse and recognized him, and that's what led them here. So with Jesse and Tulip in the van, Jody and T.C. take them east to the state line to Angelville, Louisiana. Yeah, and Jesse tries one more time to get them to let Tulip go, but Jody says, You caring about her just makes it more definite she comes too. And furthermore, he tells him should have done the right thing, boy has got all fucked up in Anvil. You should have come on home. You should have trusted your grandma, boy. Yeah, next we get a full page of them pulling into... It's basically the same view that we saw on the cover of them pulling into the Angelville compound. And it really does look like a horrible fucking place. You've got the burning crosses on the lawn and this big, imposing Gothic mansion... There are also two more guys with guns just standing in the yard watching this. Apparently the staff is somewhat larger than just Jody and TC. Angelville, says Jody. Welcome home, little Jesse. Jesse explains to Tulip that this is the most awful place there is. If the devil created Texas like some folks say he did, this is where he rested on the seventh day. This is where I grew up, Tulip. This is where the story began. So they tie Jesse and Tulip to chairs, which is where we found them at the beginning of the comic. Right, and Jesse implores Tulip to just stay quiet. The only chance she has is not to say a goddamn word. Jody offers Jesse a cigarette, and Jesse has a moment of recognition as he sees Jody's lighter. It's a silver flip lighter, and it says, Fuck Communism on it. Yeah, I think this is the first appearance of the Fuck Communism lighter. But we're going to find out that doesn't rightly belong to Jody, Right. And then we meet Grandma. Yeah, we get a f- another full-page shot of this one establishing Grandma. As we saw before, she's got withered old hands and is sitting in a mechanical wheelchair. We also see that she's powerful, ugly creature. She's extraordinarily old and withered. She's basically bald. She's got some kind of IV hooked up to her wheelchair, as well as an oxygen tank. And as she enters, every one of her staff in the room say in unison, Good evening, Miss Marie! Yeah, and on the next page we get a reaction shot where Tulip looks sort of shocked, and Jessie looks incredibly angry. We find out that her name is Marie Langelle, and she sizes up Tulip Uh, Judging her to be too skinny, she doesn't have Breeders' hips. Yeah, and she accuses him once again of being contrary, running around goodness knows where when he should have come and seen her directly after the disaster at Anvil. Jesse actually says that he was on his way here. She suspects to kill her so that he could get away and live freely with Tulip. And at this point, Tulip jumps in and says... Hey, I don't know what the fuck gives you the right. And Jesse, obviously terrified, yeah, says, Tulip, shut the fuck up! But it's too late. Jody gives Tulip a punch across the jaw, resulting in Jesse completely losing his temper. He rants that he's gonna kill Jody, promises to kill Jody, but Jody just says, Tried it before, boy, remember? Remember? There's a good exchange here. His grandmother basically accuses him of being full of his white trash father. That worthless waste of life who left you nothing but his name. To which Jesse replies, That's all I'll ever need. That's a good line. Grandma goes on to explain, I find it creepy to call her Marie, so I'm going to continue to call her Grandma. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) sure which is more creepy. It feels creepy either way, but yeah, I, I... Definitely think of her as the grandma. Grandma goes on to explain that the word doesn't work because the Lord is on her side. Right. She knows about all of it. What became of Anvil, Genesis, the angels, and the Sina Killers. And once again, she's going to make Jesse become a minister as God intended. Yep. And as I will guide you, your whore is the proof. You'll be left alone with her till dawn because Grandma loves you and wants you to know true happiness. And then, because Grandma wants you to know that she's in charge forever, Jody will blow the little bitch's brains out. Jesse and Tula are left alone in the dark. Yeah, the first page, or actually the second page of the issue where Jesse lets out that string of curses takes place between the last page and this one. Right. Some while later, they're alone and... Tulip comes to, basically, Jesse had been afraid she was already dead from the beating that Jody gave her, and Jesse apologizes. I'm so sorry, baby. I'm such a fucking asshole. If only I would told you about this shit, I wouldn't have got you down here in this fucking nightmare. Tulip replies, well, seeing you have, how about telling me now? Please, Jesse, I think you owe it to me, and I'm not going anywhere. And Jesse says, oh, baby, oh, Jesus Christ in heaven. Yeah. Finally time to talk. So, man, that's a rough issue, and things are going to get rougher. Yeah, it's rough, but at the same time, it's very satisfying knowing that we're finally coming up on the answers that we've, been, that we've been wanting for so long. Yeah, and it's definitely the most dramatic way to go about getting those answers. Jesse can't just explain. This stuff has to actually catch up with them. Yeah, This is just masterful writing and art here. Steve Dillon does such a good job of rendering the grandmother as this, you know, hideous, terrifying figure. Yeah, as well, a lot of great facial expressions on Jesse and Tulip. I mean, these are people who do not scare easily based on the stuff that we've seen. And Jesse is obviously out of his depth in a way we've never seen before. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of great dialogue, and I, I think it's an incredible twist that Jesse has lost his powers for some reason as well that we don't understand. Right, as if his crazy family weren't scary enough, his greatest advantage has been taken away. And we find our heroes basically at the lowest possible ebb here. Right, so Preacher number nine, when the story began... You want to talk about the cover here? On the cover, we've got a sort of a twisted family photo with Grandma at the center. And she is flanked by Jody and TC. Jody with an assault rifle and TC with a big-ass knife. Yeah, and in front of her are little Jesse and a deformed child. We don't know who that is yet, but a little, little thing that I didn't notice the first time here. The deformed child has only one eye, and he's wearing a tank top with a picture of a smiley face that has only one eye. Right. The whole thing is sort of a blue equivalent of sepia tone. You could think of it as a black and white photograph. And as well, there's a prominently displayed crucifix in the center, high center of the image right behind grandma, and two photographs or drawings of people in the background. I don't know if these are supposed to be people we can know or just members of the Langell family. Yeah, I didn't recognize them. We should say this cover, like all the other covers so far, is by Glenn Fabry. And yeah, it's just amazing at setting the tone for the issue we're about to get. It's remarkably detailed, but the sense that this is somebody's family photo Is definitely present. So the issue starts with Grandma up in her bedroom and she's talking to someone who certainly seems to be God. Yeah, so we first have a shot from the window, right? The window outside the house as somebody is saying, somebody is giving her permission to kill the woman. And then we see that she is praying to God and someone is answering from inside the room. Right. He approves of the plan so far, says he wants to see the woman's body before it's disposed of, and then, we shall not meet again until you enter paradise. She's kind of sputtering, not sure how to address him, but he tells her how to begin, hallowed be thy name. Yeah, that's right. As confident as she was with Jesse in the last scene of the previous issue, she's clearly caught off guard here. It doesn't seem like she's been talking to God her whole life. Right, right. So so why shouldn't she be taken off guard? I think, you know, she does terrible things in the name of God, and we're going to see more of that coming up, but her feelings aren't disingenuous. Yeah. She genuinely believes, and she's having a, you know, a religious experience here. Right, and in the last panel, a white hand reaches out to her, and she's bathed in white light, From the figure that she's talking to. And as we turn the page, we smash cut to a young man who looks a lot like Jesse getting spit in the face. Baby killer! And that's about how my mom and dad met up. A panel on the next page shows us that this is Jesse. He and Tulip are still tied up in the chairs where we left them at the end of the last issue, and he is telling the story. And these are his parents. Private John Custer, just home from the war in Vietnam, and Christina Langell. Yeah, and Christina Langell has fallen in with some dirty hippies who convinced her that spitting on a returning serviceman was the thing to do. Yeah, these are not really her friends she's going to explain in a moment, but they're people that gave her a ride and that she's been traveling with, and sort of in an attempt to impress them, she decided to accost John Custer there. But we see on the next page, as he makes his way to a bar and sort of has a depressed drink, she catches up with him to apologize, and they just uh, they just both start crying, tears streaming down their faces, and they silently turn and embrace. Yeah, this entire page plays out without any dialogue, and it's just very well done. There's an immediate connection between the two of them, and... Just a huge amount of emotional vulnerability on both sides. That's a beautiful page. It's a beautiful moment. Yeah, I agree. So, Christina apologizes. Was I, what, was I trying to impress them? I listened to all their talk about Vietnam, and the first time I see a G.I., I I am so sorry. John says, well, I guess you ought to be calling a Marine a G.I., He's not mad. It turns out because he had heard from the guys before he shipped back home that this kind of thing was going on, and he basically he knew to expect it. There wasn't no heroes' welcome waiting back home like our daddies got in World War Two. He goes on to explain, "I never killed no babies, but I ain't denying I saw and did some pointless, fucked up things over there. And if I was being honest, I'd have to say it was because someone told me it was the right thing to do." He tells her that he thinks Christina Langell is the prettiest name he ever heard. She says that he might not think so if he knew what went along with it. But she suggests that they both stop listening to what other people think they ought to do and start figuring it out for themselves. And at this point, they kiss. And on the next page, we're back with Jesse and Tulip, and he's telling her, I like to think they made up for the short time they'd have by loving each other like no one ever had before. We catch up with John and Christina again. They've found a a motel room and made love. And in the aftermath, we see the Fuck Communism lighter as John offers to light Christina's cigarette. Yeah, and not to be too spoilery here, but we are going to find out the origin of that lighter in a few issues. Right. So John never goes home. He didn't really have anything waiting for him there. They take off together, and about a year and a half later, Jesse is born. Yep, they both immediately agree on the name Jesse in the hospital room. And at this point, Jesse cuts ahead in the story to an unfortunate scene. John is cleaning up one day in the bar where he works. And actually, we have about two pages before this scene becomes unpleasant. Yeah, this is just a nice scene showing the relationship between Jesse and his mother and father. Chris- Jesse was raised on John Wayne movies. Yeah, Christina walks into the bar where John is closing up, and uh, and we see, uh, we see John uh, asking Jesse to recite lines from John Wayne movies at the age of three or four. Say, Pilgrim! Pilgrim! Say, Son of a bitch! Son of a bitch! <laughs> say, Take him to Missouri! Tag him to Missouri! <laughs> <laughs> so it is appropriate, or I should say it would be appropriate for... Jesse to have delusions of John Wayne, but actually we already know that the John Wayne who appears to Jesse at times is not a hallucination, because we've seen him give Jesse information that he doesn't already have. Yeah, and we have seen the scene where John Wayne begins to speak to Jesse, and it's a couple of years down the road yet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It hasn't happened yet. So yeah, there's this really great loving relationship between Jesse and his mother, and his father. I don't know if I would call this A-plus parenting. They're about to give him a little whiskey mixed with milk so that he'll go to sleep and they can have sex. But it's clearly a, a very loving family. And that's when Jody and T.C. show up. Yeah, and Jesse kind of fills us in about Jody here. So these guys are members of a family or families that serve the Langell family, and it's basically been that way for a few centuries. Yeah. TC is just a sneaky fuck, likes to stick his dick in any critter with a pulse. But Jody... way I figure it, he maybe got fucked bad when he was little, like in the womb. Because Jody is now the leading expert on fucking people over before they can fuck him. He's strong as shit, born mean, got a real intelligence gleaming in them eyes... Last lesson he had to learn, my dad taught him 20 years ago. So Jody and TC are here to get Christina Langelle back and bring her back to Angelville. But John's not having any of it, and despite her warning that they're killers, John decides to fight, and he beats the crap out of Jody. That must be that lesson we were hearing about. Exactly. Yeah, Um, it isn't often that you see Jody bested in a fight, but John pulls it off here. And the goofy-ass look on Jody's face as he takes a sucker punch to the gut is really a (laughs) highlight of this issue. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, while John's back is turned putting Jody through a table, TC gets a couple of guns on him. He's right about to kill John when Jesse shouts, Dad, and TC realizes what he heard. Jody, I think we got us a problem. No shit. So they all get packed in the van and brought back to Angelville. We get a little history of Marie Langelle. She was over 60 when she gave birth to Christina. She must be close to 100 now. And so we learn the Langels are a French Puritan family. Jesse explains, settled here around the time of Napoleon, converted the local Indians to corpses cheaper in Christianity, and set about spreading the word to any settlers dumb enough to show up. And all the way back, he explains, all the men were preachers except in time of war. The women were meant for nothing more than breeding the next generation, which they took to real well. Family goes way back. Blood is everything. Yeah. He says, Grandma's keeping up the tradition with a vengeance. Believe me, couldn't find her anyone to marry her until she was over 50, probably because she was born with a face like dried up shit and a soul to match. And we see Grandma laying down the law. John Custer, you will marry my daughter. You will both live here with your son Jesse as a proper family in the eyes of the Lord. You will care for them as a husband and father. You will groom your son for his destiny as a man of God. You will never leave this place. If a day comes on which you are foolish enough to try, you will die. And come that day, boy, Jody says, you're mine. Okay, so they get married. So immediately after the wedding, uh, John started looking for his chance to escape and plotting how he was going to do it. Jesse has a good line here describing his childhood in Angelville. I don't remember much about being four except we stopped going to the movies and I couldn't stay up late anymore. Yeah, and we have a great panel here of John looking out the window smoking a cigarette with a dark yet determined expression on his face. He's not planning to stay here for life. It really kind of adds a lot to the tragedy of this issue that little Jesse's three or four years old and he doesn't know. He doesn't know for most of his life how strange and awful the things that are happening to him are. Yeah. It's not only that he doesn't have any power to fight back, it's like he doesn't even know that he should. Right. And, oh man, I'm worried we're going to have to read a lot of dialogue on this page too because this speech is great. Yeah, so on the next page. Jesse turns five, and John goes forward with his plan to escape, and here's where we get one of the key speeches in the entire series, John's speech to little Jesse, that basically establishes who Jesse's gonna become. I need you to be brave for me, son, and I need you to know some things in case we we don't get a chance to talk about him later. I love you, Jesse. You're my own son, and I'm proud of you, and you brought your mom and me more happiness than I ever knew there was. You be good to her and look after her. And you be a good guy, Jesse. You've got to be like John Wayne. You don't take no shit off fools and you judge a person by what's in them, not how they look. And you do the right thing. You've got to be one of the good guys, son, because there's way too many of the bad. And we cut immediately from that panel to the next panel where a haunted-looking Jesse is telling Tulip that they caught us before we got two miles and shot my daddy in the head. Yeah. So farewell, John Custer. You were at least the very best influence on Jesse's life. <laughs> yeah, Jesse also mentions here that this is the last time he ever cried, so that's important. Yeah, immediately after shooting John Custer, we don't see the shooting this time around, but we do see Jody holding the still smoking gun. He says, "Fucking little cry, baby." And Jesse suddenly understands what his father meant about there being way too many of the bad guys and I knew John Wayne never cried, so neither did I. Great panel here of determined five-year-old Jesse staring down Jody and deciding never to cry again. Yeah, he's got tears streaming down his face, but you already see the beginnings of this character who does not take any shit off of anyone. Yeah. I also want to point out here just the economy of the writing here is so good. Instead of showing us the scene of Jesse's father's shooting again, we cut to a new part that we haven't quite seen before. You know, he fills in details rather than just laying the same scene out over again. And the same thing happened with the way we sort of jumped back and forth in time in the previous issue. Yeah. I'll point out, too, that he tells Tulip that his dad got murdered here, but he doesn't dwell on the details of how it happened. We've seen it, but he... Gets the story past that point. It's clearly a very painful memory for him. Right. So he explains, basically from then on, he had nothing resembling a normal childhood. So I guess me and a normal childhood kind of passed like ships in the night. His mom was totally crushed. He was allowed to watch TV and he had a dog. But clearly he grew up in a very fucked up environment. And he had a best friend, Billy Bob. Yeah. So Billy Bob is sort of the stereotypical inbred mutant redneck kind of thing. I mean, he's not. not I think the stereotype is that there's something mean about them, and and we do find out that Billy Bob's family are basically nice people. Yeah, yeah, he's not. He's not the stereotype in terms of being evil. Yeah, it's not Deliverance or that episode of the X Files. Right, but he is deformed, and he's also deeply ignorant. Yeah, so we learned basically that Billy Bob's family lives deep in the swamp, and Jesse, when he was a kid, figured that they were exposed to chemicals that had been dumped in the swamp, and that accounted for their their physical deformities. Billy Bob has an eye on one side of his head and no socket on the other side. But Jesse has been taught by his father to judge people by what's in them, not by how they look. Right, so... The two children are friends, and one day when they're fishing, Billy Bob explains that he doesn't have to wonder who he's going to grow up to marry, because he's going to marry his sister, Lori. Dad says it's good, because it lets us keep our bloodline. I don't know what that is, but I guess it's good to keep one. I want to mention here that Billy Bob's family has a very old bloodline, which, which they think it's important to preserve by interbreeding. Delangels are another very old family with strictly determined roles and a commandment to keep their bloodline, and we're going to see an important bloodline at least one more time in the series when we find out more about the Grail. Yes, indeed. So this, this idea of these very old and powerful and traditional families is something that we see again and again here. Yeah, yeah, not powerful in any kind of economic sense, at least in terms of Billy Bob's family, but... Yeah, so some questions are definitely raised here about the value of an old bloodline, too. (laughs) Yeah, that's an idea that comes up and is sort of mocked repeatedly in Preacher. Yeah. So, yeah, he was relatively happy hanging out with Billy Bob and watching TV and having a dog. And it was good that he was happy. Marie was fine with that because she had her own plans for him. Grandma... Pulls Jesse aside to tell him about a special friend, God. God's special because he's always with you, Jesse. He lives inside you in your heart. He sees everything you do, and he knows what you're thinking, always. God loves you very much because he made you, and God wants you to love him because if you love him and do good things all your life, he'll take you away to live with him when you die. Now, isn't it nice to have a friend like God? And Jesse, as he's hearing this, is... Just wide-eyed and terrified.
1: I didn't mean for that to
0: rhyme. You want to do it again? No, no, I just... I'm just saying. Okay. Yeah, and Jesse, hearing this, thinks that the idea of God is actually pretty scary. And he says so, and Grandma slaps him across the face. Actually, she claws him across the face. Yeah, I guess that's true. She does leave scratch marks. So, Jesse narrates... I pretty soon realized the right answer was yes, it was nice to have a friend like God. I was seven. Jesse had to learn a page of the Bible every day, and his mother intervened and made sure that he learned some other things, too. English, math, a little bit of history. Yeah, she was clever, but her heart really wasn't in it. Even though she loved him, she wanted to get out of Angelville more than anything. You could see, maybe once a day at least. All she wanted was to go on and be with Dad. I never thought bad of her for it. And now that brings Jesse to the point in his story of the last day he ever saw his mother. He was watching cartoons with Billy Bob, but Duke went outside and was bothering Jody for some reason. Yeah, Jody and TC are passing a joint back and forth. As TC is bragging about having fucked a fish. (laughs) Oh, God. And... The dog comes up and starts bothering Jody, so he nails it to the fence. Little Jesse is furious as he runs up and starts ineffectually punching Jody, yelling, Fucker! Fucker! Dirty fucker! Christ's sake, boy, just a fucking mutt. Grandma overhears this and is not happy about Jesse's language. That's the problem. Right, all the horrible things that happen on her farm, and and this terrifying punishment that we're about to see is apparently reserved just for bad language. (laughs) Yeah. So for cussing in front of Grandma, Jesse has to go in the coffin. And as soon as she hears this, Christina is having none of it. She says that she went in the coffin when she was young, but Grandma's not going to do it to her child. Over my dead body, you sick old whore. Yeah, and at this point, as Jesse explains, It's just a pure mathematical equation to Grandma. She's decided that her own daughter is no longer worth the trouble to keep alive. Right, in the cruel mathematics of Grandma's world, Christina has already had a child, so there's simply no more need for her. And as Jesse is put in the coffin, Jody drags Christina away, and we never see her again. And they dragged her away in front of my eyes. The coffin, we learn, is sealed airtight. There's a breathing tube, but the coffin is lowered into the bottom of the swamp. You go in the coffin, coffin goes in the water. So you're in the water. And the last thing Jesse sees before they close the lid, oh yeah, grandma's face. Huh, holy crap, that's a dark issue. Oh, no kidding! Yeah, this is Jesse's dark night of the soul. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, both in the present and in the, and in the past, it's if a good villain is that they make your blood boil and you just you just hate them with all your soul, then they have created a great villain, in Grandma, Langelle. Yeah, just over and over again in this issue and in the next issue, the incredible injustice of the things that they do is just gonna it's just gonna get to you, and. And this is an ordeal for Jesse to tell, and it's an ordeal for him to have lived through. This is what broke him down over and over again so that he could be built into the man we know. Yeah, and I also really like that they're letting this play out over the course of three issues when, you know, it could easily be covered in one by a lesser comic book because they're really, like, they're really making sure you see... How Jesse was broken down and how he came to to feel as he does and believe as he does. Yeah, you're right. This could be, you know, a montage of a few panels in a larger issue where he simply tells them major events and we get just a couple of moments, you know, key moments, establishing the flavor of his childhood. But that's not what they're doing here. What Garth Ennis is doing here is telling the story of how it happened and giving that story room to breathe. Yeah, and... And we're seeing Jesse shaped into the man that he's going to be. And speaking of the man Jesse's going to be, we find him on the cover of Preacher number 10. About 15, I guess. Teeth gritted, with his dukes up. I mean his fists, not the duke and duke the dog. Right, he doesn't have like his puppy and John Wayne. Right, he's ready for a fight. Yeah, he's looking quite pugilistic here, and he's also bloodied, his shirt torn, he's got a black eye. And And that's our introduction to the issue entitled, How I Learned to Love the Lord. Right. Title page on the first page of this issue. That doesn't happen that much. And we see the lonely sight of Jesse's in the coffin at the bottom of the swamp. And there's two coils connecting it to the surface so that he can breathe. Do you think they pull it up by those coils? We don't see anything else for them to pull it up by. And they don't seem to have any kind of machinery on the dock either. So, yeah. Unless, like, Jody and TC swim down there and kind of haul it up, you know, go around as the the lake slopes up. Yeah, it's possible we're overthinking this. (laughs) The other other thing they they could conceivably do is just, like, disconnect it from the weights when it's time to pull it up. Right, swim down and, and... detach the weights. Yeah, that makes sense. This actually looks like remarkably clear water for a swamp. I mean, we got some plants here, but we can basically see quite clearly. That's a little strange, but you know, it is what it is. I now, don't know swamps or anything. Now we're definitely overthinking it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like his line here. He says, my week in the coffin kind of sucked. <laughs> yeah. It says you could breathe through the tube okay, but that was it for the good news. You couldn't figure time, you couldn't see a goddamn thing, you starved. I like how Tulip says, Jesse, you were a little kid. How in Christ's name did you stand it? And he pauses for a moment and says, wish I knew. He's dragged up by Jody and Grandma, and warned that bad boys always get the coffin around these parts. And then he continues his story to Tulip, explaining that it's around this time that he learned to believe in the Lord. Grandma's page a day began to tell. knew she didn't love me. Jody and TC, I doubt they even knew the damn word. But every day I'd have the Bible telling me God loved me. Well, I thought, as long as somebody did." Right, yeah, that's very effective from a storytelling standpoint. So here we have, he's a little bit older, he's a teenager now, and he's started to be drawn more or less as the Jesse that we know, instead of as the kid. Yeah, he and Billy Bob are just about to turn 16 now. And Billy Bob is very excited because when he turns 16, that's when he gets to marry Lori. Yep, and he asks Jesse to be his best man. And Jesse agrees. So there was still a little hope in the world, so long as I had a friend. Came the day that T.C. fucked the chicken. That's a hell of a stage setting. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) what happens here is not funny, but that line is very funny. Yeah. So, yeah, TC goes into the barn to fuck a chicken. There's not really a lot more to that. But Billy Bob had stayed over the previous night because of a storm. And he was sleeping in the barn because Grandma never allowed him in the house. Right. And he didn't mean to catch TC fucking the chicken. That sounds like it's a euphemism for something. No. But it's not. He's just literally fucking a chicken. Yeah. And he's a gross kind of guy. But anyway... He would have gotten away with it. He didn't mean to be sneaking and catching T.C. fucking the chicken, but he was sleeping in the barn, and he would have gotten away unnoticed by hiding in the hay, except that T.C. had drank so much before he got romantic. Right, so he comes over to piss on the hay, and when he pisses accidentally in Billy Bob's eye, Billy Bob reacts, and T.C. catches him and cuts his throat. Yeah, just awful. Billy Bob comes running out of the barn, with his throat cut, and Jesse sees what happened. Billy Bob dies right in front of him. And Jesse's reaction is immediate and furious as he starts beating the shit out of TC and yelling, COCKSUCKER! <laughs> yeah, he yells COCKSUCKER right as he kicks him between the legs, and the look on TC's face here is pretty good. Also, like... Did you notice that it doesn't seem like T.C. even realizes Jesse's gonna be mad at him? Right, or at least he seems to think that his reaction was reasonable, you know, as he comes out of the barn just ready to tell everybody what he caught Billy Bob doing. Right. Yeah, so he gets the better of T.C. pretty easily, but then Jody shows up. Yeah, figure you're about old enough for this boy. And yeah, he has his first fight with Jody. And he acquits himself pretty well, but he's still no match for him. Jody gets Jesse in an arm lock and demands he surrender, and actually pulls on the arm until he gives Jesse a compound fracture. Yeah, and that's what finally makes Jesse say uncle. They fix up his arm, and then he has to go in the coffin again for a fortnight this time, because Grandma heard him say cocksucker. When he comes out, his first question is, What will you do with Bibbob? Hell, boy. All that time down there, you never wondered what that weight was on the lid. Damn. Yeah, that's fucking harsh. And Jody takes sheer sadistic pleasure in it. Yeah, but it's interesting to see, too, that with John Custer gone, Jody kind of takes on the role of father figure. And while he's a terrible, horrible guy... He does teach Jesse things that are part of the man that he becomes. Right, yeah. It's established that Jesse knows all about engines and horses and fighting because of Jody. Right, and this scene where they're fighting before they put him in the coffin here, it's not just Jody kicking his ass to keep him in line, but he sees that it's time for Jesse to be taught to fight. Right, to be taught to fight, but also to be taught that... He's no match for Jody. Yeah. In a way, Jesse kind of becomes the combination of Jody's toughness and his father's goodness. Yeah, I think that that's true. So Jesse has to, basically as soon as he comes up out of the swamp, he has to... Oh no, it's not as soon as he comes up out of the swamp, because he has to wait for his arm to get better first. But he slips away to see Billy Bob's folks and break the news to them. They don't have a lot of forgiveness for Jesse. Well, also, I want to point out that this is where we see Lori for the first time, and she also has only one eye. Right, well, their parents seem to have two eyes that are very close together, and the children both have only one. And I'm guessing these two are also brother and sister, as Billy Bob has explained to us. Right. So this woman, possibly the grandmother of the Swamp Folk family? Doesn't have a lot of forgiveness for Jesse, and she says, You Langells, all you do is cause misery to folks. Always been that way. Snakes in the night, that's what you are. My name ain't Langell, ma'am. Billy Bob's dad says, I don't care what your damn name is. Your damn family murdered my boy. You that's supposed to be his best friend, knowing you was about the worst thing Billy Bob could have had happened to him. Get out of our home, you son of a bitch. Jesse sort of realizes that Angel Bill's not going to get any better. It's just going to keep taking away all the people that he loves. And when he says this, Tulip looks at him, alarmed. And he says, oh, no, baby. But she replies, just go on. He's scared, but only for a second. And he never even walks home from Billy Bob's family's place. Just starts hitchhiking away. Fuck it, I said. I'm never going back. Long time before, my mom probably said the same damn thing. So, Jesse hitchhikes to Beaumont, Texas, and starts work as a cowboy. Jody had done that work, and Jesse picked up everything he knew about horses. Yeah, you know, we never saw a horse in Angelville, I don't think. But they had hay. Yeah, that's true, and we see them putting fences up, so it, it does seem like they keep stock. Yeah, they must. Of course, we also never see them, you know, shop for food. Yeah, that's true. So Jesse starts alternating weeks of work in Lubbock, Texas with weekends of drinking and fucking in Austin or San Antonio, and that's where he meets Tulip. Yeah, he walks into a bar with a skinny brunette on his arm, who we will learn is named Zoe, (laughs) and as they're telling the story, he says, you never did cotton much to Zoe, did you? Tulip replies, nope, and he says, Guess that made it easier to steal me from her. Yeah, Jesse and Tulip notice each other. She's sitting at the bar. He's walking in, and she says, You are a cocky little bastard, Jesse. I had to have you. Yeah, that's a good line, too. So this is the first meeting between Jesse and Tulip, which makes this a pretty crucial moment for the series in its own right. Yeah, that's true. They hit it off immediately. (laughs) Go ahead. This is a cool moment here, the way that they hit it off, which is that he's got his eyes closed and a cigarette in his mouth, and he turns to Zoe for her to light it, and he doesn't realize until after it's lit and he opens his eyes back up that it's Tulip who lit it, not Zoe. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah, this is very cinematic, as we don't find out, like, what they talk about. We just have a pure meeting here, and before long they are screwing in the front seat of a car, as he's trying to hotwire it, the owner pops out with a gun and they steal the car and take off. (laughs) Yeah. This is also the point where we find out that she's older than him. Three years older, not exactly Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, but that establishes something we didn't know. Yeah, so he's about 17, she's about 20 at this point. They spend a couple of years stealing cars and screwing like bunnies. Yeah, and we see them... They're having sex on the hood of a car in the middle of the desert, and then a few minutes later they're lying on top of it, and Tulip asks, Do you love me? And that's when Jesse says it for the first time. Yeah, I do. Like I never loved anyone before. I'll love you until the end of the world. We cut back to the basement, where he and Tulip are sitting in the dark, and she says, Five years on, and that still gets to me like it was yesterday. And Jesse explains that This brings him to the part where he's going to answer all her questions. Why he left in Phoenix! (laughs) There should be lights or something. So they've just arrived in Phoenix. Their next stop is going to be San Francisco, where Jesse reveals, while Tulip is not listening, that that's where he plans to ask her to marry him. Right, but he asks her to pop off to the corner store and get him a beer. Yeah, he's sitting on a park bench in Phoenix. Well, first they're on it together, and then she runs off to the store to get him a beer. And the next thing we know, he's got Jody sitting on one side of him and TC on the other. And Jody makes it simple for him. He promises to let Tulip go if Jesse will come with them, no fuss. Otherwise, he shoots her through the fucking head. And so we find Tulip walking back to the park. Do you know what she's singing here? I did not recognize this song, no. Okay, I'll have to look that up. But she finds the park bench empty. And, as we know, never finds out what happened to Jesse until this moment. Jesse, I've been hating you for five years for no reason at all. Why didn't you tell me? Jesse says, I didn't want to have to explain about Grandma and Angelville, all that shit. Figured you'd think I was some kind of fucking freak. Well, you looked at me a couple times there. Maybe I wasn't far wrong. So, at this point, Jesse's just completely given up. He's dragged back to Angelville, and he has to do a month in the coffin. Which I understand there has to be, like, a most horrific moment to the story, and I don't want to nitpick, because this is a great story, but a month in a coffin under a swamp? Yeah, he couldn't survive that. That doesn't really make sense. But but we'll uh, suspend our disbelief. But he explains that this is how he came to truly love God. That's what God's there for. When you're beaten, when you haven't an ounce of fight left in you, when you just can't hack it by yourself anymore. You turn to Jesus or you stick a fucking gun in your mouth. I was happy. Grandma was happy. Hell, all of us were fucking delirious. She pulled a few strings and got me pushed through the ministry in record time. A couple of years and Reverend Jesse Custer was doing the Lord's work among the good people of Anvil. A couple of years of that and he was putting away a bottle of J.D. at night. So there's kind of a little bit of philosophy from Garth Ennis here. He's not a religious person, I would assume, based on the vast majority of the context provided by this series. But, in a way, this is surprisingly unwilling to blame religious people? You say he's not a religious person? Oh, Garth Ennis isn't. Right. You're not saying that Jesse isn't. Yeah, I mean, this series is definitely very cynical about religion. Mm Mm-hmm but at the same time, the view that's taken here is actually kind of sympathetic. It's religion exists because some things are so awful you can't face them by yourself. Yeah, I mean, if it was just a series about mocking and belittling religion, I don't think it would be very interesting, you know? The thing about Preacher is that we get a lot of cynicism about religion, but we also get a lot of grandeur and a lot of idealism as well okay that's something i'm looking forward to seeing more of i suppose i haven't seen a lot yet that shows sort of the positive power of religion in people's lives well this is maybe the closest thing that we've seen to that yet well just jesse's idealistic quest to track down god well no, that's true it's not exactly in a religious way but he is definitely an idealist in some ways right do you think maybe that. Do you think that Garthenis maybe went a little too far out of his way to have a preacher character whose belief came from such an extreme set of circumstances? Like, the only way he could believe a heroic preacher character is if he'd been forced at gunpoint to believe in God. Yeah, I can't say that ever occurred to me as a criticism. I don't know if that's how I read it, that there are no sympathetic religious people other than the ones forced at gunpoint to become religious. I mean, he obviously wanted Jesse to have a lapsed faith. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's not true based on this context that he never believed. But he never really thought of religion as a positive force in his life either, right? It's, it's representative of this bad relationship with the awful people who raised him. Well, it's the only thing stopping him from putting a gun in his mouth. Well, that's true. (laughs) His position as a preacher is never something he sought out. It's always something that he was forced into. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Okay, so that leads us to issue number one. Jesse getting drunk in the bar in Anvil and calling out all of the parishioners on their hypocrisy. Yeah, and once again, it doesn't show us that scene again, but Garth Ennis does a really good job of bringing us right up to the moment in such a way that we know that that's where things pick up. Right, and that's the end of the flashback. It's Dawn, Grandma, TC, and Jody are walking down the hall. Yeah, we get this foreboding shot of them walking down the hall. So Jesse apologizes for not being straight with Tulip and then declares his love. I swear to God I love you, and I'll love you till the end of the world. And at that moment, Grandma, Jody, and TC come through the door. Good morning, Jesse. Jody? Jody puts a gun to Tulip's head. Jesse begs him to stop. And Tulip just murmurs, Can't I even kiss him goodbye? And then Jody pulls the trigger and blows Tulip's brains out. And this, I think, is like the most heartbreaking moment that I've ever read in a comic book. Just the, the violence of Tulip getting killed, and the horrified look on Jesse's face, and the way that he was frantically begging, and That's Tulip's last words. Jesse's in a state now, of sheer despair, all of, all of his years trying to get away, everything that we've seen so far in the comic, and he's back in Angelville, back in Grandma's power. Yeah, and it's just cost him the love of his life didn't really think they'd do it. The yeah. writers, I mean. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is definitely a tremendously shocking moment for the readers as well. I mean, Tulip is already, over the course of 10 issues, a character that we've come to know pretty well and to, and to really love, I think. Yeah, we certainly expect her to be a main character in this series for the long haul. So, that brings us to the end of the first half of the All in the Family story arc, and again, one of the darkest and most heartbreaking scenes of this series. Now we've seen the story of Jesse's past, in the next couple issues it'll be time for him to confront it head-on. That's right, our next Preacher episode... We'll be covering issues 11 and 12 that wrap up the story arc. But first, join us next week when Sandman squeezes into a doll's house. (laughs) (laughs) The marriage was built to last. The house was built too small. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's a commercial. I'm going to have to post it. But yeah, we will be covering the beginning of the doll's house. In Sandman, next issue, join us for Tales in the Sand. If you like our show, check out vertiguise.blueberry.com. That's spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. And it occurs to me that we've never really told you how to spell vertiguise, which is just like it sounds. V-E-R-T-I-G-U-Y-S. Yeah, if you're listening to this, you can probably find the spelling of vertiguise pretty easily just by looking at your screen. <laughs> well that's a valid point uh you can also get in touch with us at vertiguys on twitter or at vertiguys at gmail.com thanks for listening thanks